brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss. So become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Happy days are here again, Higher Side Chatters, as we dive into another mystery left unsolved on this island Earth. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood. And when it comes to the quest to unearth proof of an advanced civilization in the distant past, some ancient extraterrestrial knowledge seeders, and even epic troves of treasure and artifacts lost to time, there are few pockets of the planet more intriguing and ripe for exploration than the vast jungles, mountains, and underground cave systems of South America. One such place seated within this nexus is the Taos Caves, a deep and winding underground cave system steeped in mystery and intrigue. From the inexplicable architectural design and the legends of an underground kingdom, to claims of curses and even libraries of lost books of metal and gold. It's a place that's perfect for a THC-style investigation, and wouldn't you know it, we have the best of the best here to talk about it today. His name is Alex Cianetti, and not only is he an award-winning journalist and filmmaker, he's also done a ton of investigation into the claims and stories about the Taos Caves over the last 30 years and has even descended deep inside them with his own first-hand explorations, all of which are the subject of his great book, Mysteries of the Taos Caves, The Lost Civilization Where the Andes Meets the Amazon. So let's get into it. Brace yourself and bend the knee, good people, for the lost civilization seeker, the cave mystery revealer, and the underground explorer himself, Alex Cianetti. Welcome to the higher side. Oh, my pleasure to be here, Greg. Let's go to explore. Let's go to descend to the deep of the earth. (laughs) (laughs) Let's do it. Let's do it. This is going to be a lot of fun because I just love these sorts of mysteries. And to have someone who's really made this the focus of their life's work is really awesome. I really love the book as well. And in it, you write about the sacred geometry of the Andes and the Ecuadorian jungle which seems like a good way to break the ice. What makes this area around the Taos Caves so special? Oh, it's along my exploration of the Andes and the jungle, I found many secret places and sacred places in the both dual way. Especially, it's hard to find caves of big size you found in the middle of the Amazonian range. It's not very common. But 
the cave is connecting with many traditions and many lines, we could say the invisible and visible lines coming from east to west and west to east. And not only along these lines you find constructions, but you find a line of pilgrimage of ancient cultures and peoples who used to travel from the beaches, from the shores of the Pacific to the jungle. We don't know exactly how the Amazonian population and tribes arrived there. We have all the typical classical archaeology, anthropology, situating the Bering Strait and the penetration from the north. But now with so many new discoveries, we start to find the history and the anthropology, ethnographical migrations lines that were wrong. And there were other kind of cradles of civilizations, including in the Amazonian range. But one of the ancient peoples were the Quituscaras, who were the ancestors of the people now in Quito, Ecuador, the capital of Ecuador. And this Invisible lines connecting with the quest of the sun and the translation of this on the sunit and through these meridians and latitudes and longitudes of this ancient world, we can also measure this true existence of mounds of pyramids. And these pyramids are kind of amazing, older construction of 3,000 years. All, for example, the pyramids of Kochaski, a place I did a couple research and exploration years ago, and I found, for example, these pyramidal structures, one of the unique north of Quito, north part of Ecuador, they have orientation to Ursas Major and Ursas Minor. These bright stars were so important for all the South American native peoples. And also, I found these kind of lines in the ceremonial sites, market solstice, marking solstice and equinox on the ground, through burnet and cocket mud ground, and always showing this type of calendar. And the other interesting thing is when the French trace the equatorial line in the 1800s, La Condamine and his team, they were 10 degrees wrong. And with new measurements, we found this culture called the Quituscaras, who were pre-Incas, pre-Inca civilization, settled more in the center north part of the Andes coast. They were in perfection. They measured Ecuador with zero mistake error. <laughs> right, right. That was in the notes that you had sent me over. And when you're talking about these invisible lines connecting the sun, you're kind of you're talking about like energy lines or the electromagnetic grid around the planet and that these ancient people of Ecuador were just experts in knowing about this, mapping it and potentially even harnessing it. Is that what you're getting at? Right. They were kind of, we call the precognitive lines. The ancient peoples, they have a different type of cognition. 
in some degrees similar, but in other degrees may be more advanced as being in contact with nature. The interaction with the cosmos was totally different mm. and more, we could say, more holistic in many degrees. And the knowledge of nature and the weather and the translation of the sun through the seasons was really different. And they follow the season and they follow solstice and equinox. And interesting, many of the formations, the Tajoscapes, the center, the illumination of the descending angle is hit by the beam of sun in December and in March. When you have the solstice and December, yeah, December and March, equinox and solstice. And it's where in this center, in the end of this solar beam of light, was found a boreal site. And this boreal site, they have a kind of an important character. And we don't know how he descends to this big shaft, where we have the main shaft of the Quangos case, who is kind of the cathedral of the system of Tajos. Tajos is not only one cave, but there are many. There are hundreds of caves connected in an area of 100 square miles. Mm -hmm. And only few had been exploring, and the main one had been a protagonist of one of the largest expeditions in 1976, and was also the scenery, the place of my expeditions a few years ago. Yes, and the maps you have in here are quite incredible. They do go very deep, and there have been a handful of expeditions, and you have them mapped out as well, and we'll definitely get into some of the characters and some of the intrigue and what was described from some of those expeditions. Yeah, I have been mapping the caves also. Yes. You could see the maps of my exploration in my book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so when it comes to these caves... With underground networks, there's always a lot of speculation. How much of this is natural and was some of this man-made or created by some kind of intelligence? Do you get a sense that the Taos Caves are a completely natural formation or have they been kind of cultivated a little bit or altered by man in the past? What's your thoughts on that? Well, it's, my thoughts have been part of my initial story. And my initial story was I grew up in Argentina, Buenos Aires, and when I was a teenager, I wrote a book about subterranean, the intraterrestrial wars, a book called Mundos Paralelos, Parallel Wars, where I just published the 40th anniversary, but the book is called there in, in my country and the Spanish-speaking countries, but now it's in Amazon, but still it's only in the Spanish version, the original reprint of the first edition. And in that book, I make a kind of a narrative on the discoveries and exploration on the 70s. And one of the protagonists who was the person who helped Neil Armstrong to descend to the cave in 1976, 
was he wanted to know me, and he called me to an appointment, and his name was Julio Goyenaguado, and he was the head of the Spelunkin Society, the center of spelology. And he was a consumed researcher, but his organization was not only exploring the visible war, but also was exploring the invisible war. was more a kind of, I could say, an esoteric circle. And they have a lot of wisdom about a civilization who were living below the Andes from immemorial times. And one of the first places he sent me was the witches' caves, La Cueva de las Brujas. And this was a kind of part of the, the initiation to start the entering of the subterranean war and mysteries. Wow. <laughs> but coming back to the artificiality or naturality of the caves, he showed me a picture of a corner stone, a kind of a stone who was part of a survey, photographic surveys in a previous expedition of 1969, before Julio descend in the expedition organized by Stanley Hall, after reading the book of von Danik and The God of the Gods. The God of the Gods in 1974 put the caves in the map of interest in, of all the worldwide mysteries. Right of the past and turning a bestseller and I tried whole and whole organized this expedition with all the scientific corpus of Europe, mainly England and Scotland. And my friend descend with them as he was friend with another character we are going to talk in the next is Juan Morix. And in that previous expedition they took a picture and I said, well I have to really found this cornerstone, but if exist two kind of pillars supporting the ceiling of the one main gallery with connecting gallery, that means was an architecture, was a proto-historical, prehistorical construction. And we have to add the very advanced polishing techniques on some of the tunnels, and we find this kind of arc with brick layers and a giant megalith supporting the ceiling and the pass between two galleries. And one thing is kind of the erosion. We are talking about cars and limestone, and the cars and limestone, what are the most of the caves, are not building forms in a rectangular cutting angles, straight angles, but more in circular mm. and soft angles. That was the big impression. We have kind of the impression and we have also, yeah, the technological elements of a lost architecture. And this expedition, who have many geologists, they couldn't explain many of these features I am talking about. And mm -hmm. um, recent expedition after mine, they couldn't explain it neither. Well, we have some who are totally convinced it's a natural formation and it's part of the erosion. But through my knowledge, I cannot really 
explain their parents and we cannot explain many of the geological features who shows some kind of manhunt or ancient technology <laughs> applied to drill and cut the rock and this is support by this area this area is not too far of the big megalithic constructions of pre-incas a incas mm -hmm. and also scenario of janganates who we found a few years ago another perfect wall with brick and mortars lines was totally unexplainable and being in the kingdom of the incas and the pre-incas we are supporting the theory of the artificiality and why what is still we cannot explain how the incas build these monumental fortresses and walls and structures yeah, either on the level of the sea or in the high altitude when you have to carry from big distances big huge amongus blocks of stone being volcanic stone or granitical or limestone is still they are heavy and the encastration how fitting with perfection still we cannot reproduce that kind of use of gravity on polishing and beside that we have all the tradition an oral tradition as the incas didn't develop any writing scripture or kind of uh, ideographic type of communication mm. we have only the quipus but the quipus is mathematical thing and it still is a big mystery how they don't being so advanced didn't develop the writing thing i imagine they use a graphic type of optical interpretation of nature and construction well said there are definitely many mysteries of the ancient world especially when you get down into some of these megalithic sites there's just so many provocative things that it's a real mystery how they did some of this stuff especially given how unforgiving some of these landscapes you're describing can be and when it comes to the book and the taos caves adventurers there are a lot of names to know in the book when it comes to the various people who have traveled inside the caves can you tell us a bit about the original explorer of the caves and what he claimed to have seen that kind of set this mystery off well the mystery was set off by janos morris who was a hungarian argentinian who immigrated in the 60s to Ecuador and he was the first to kind of declare and register with public notary and through his lawyer a kind of a bounty of elements he found in one of the chambers and uh, my friend Julio was part of that association that is my involvement with the discovery and had been kind of defending the original story unfortunately through recent television shows always was a distortion focusing only in the anglo aspect as the british and the scottish expedition took over the american television was focusing in the one who speak english and they forgot the rest <laughs> and the original explorers and discoverers were two ones with janos morris and julio gojenawalo 
before, yeah, were some militaries. Equatorian was an Italian traveler who passed and said, oh, it's a cave there, but nobody descend. <laughs> In 1969 was the first descending to the Guangos Cave with a group of local people from Guayaquil and Morix called expedition Taltosok Barlanga within Hungarian is expedition to the Tajos caves to the underground war and with the company of his lawyer and a group of an eclectic team of doctors and opticians and photographers and some militaries and the association with the tourist office they were the first who saw these structures i described but one year before this hungarian who was looking the evidence of the underground war connecting not only europe but the americas north with south he was climbing he entered in one part of argentina and he showed up in peru walking all the way through the inner kind of layers of the wow and he couldn't prove it but he already have a big kind of knowledge of ancient traditions and in europe he was kind of prisoner of the nazis and he was invited to be a part of this group anher who was the intellectual scientific division of the nazis who were looking for this time of free energy and also the secret of the Andes, we could say, how the Incas have the power to move stones and to lift it. And they call the Brill Force, no? The Brill. Yeah, it was part of a kind of pseudo literature in that time and previous kind of researchers in the fringe science of the 1900s. Yes. And I just love some of this stuff. And you write in your chapter, The Interterrestrial Atlanteans, that Morix worked his whole life to find evidence of an interterrestrial civilization. That was one of his big goals. And I am really intrigued by that idea. How close do you think he got? Well, he got very close. And he was not only an explorer a traveler and uh, adventurer who walk along the jungles and the sierras and the high mountains, but he have also a baggage of intellectual formation from his ancestral Hungary. And he was also interested in, in the toponymics and the semantics and the linguistic terms. And with many elements, they are kind of converging, no? And some versions said he heard the story from a military guy. His name was Petronio Jaramillo, who is also part of the story. And I researched the life and consequences of Jaramillo. And, and Jaramillo also was one of the first characters just after the discovery of Morix come to the surface through the travel and research of an American Italian, Italian American explorer named Pino Turola. And Pino, he explored the legends of Tajos, one of the first ones. And he interviewed Jaramillo, and Jaramillo tell in 1950s 
he was guided by the Indians after saving the life of one adolescent native. He was granted through this encounter to descend on the caves. And he described many similar things. Morris will be describing that inventory of findings, who also they were photographed between quotes by von Daniken and he said in the book, but the goal of the gods. But when the book was published, we found that photographs were not part of the Tajus, but they were part of another great mystery called the Father Crespi collection. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. And that's a provocative thing. I think a lot of people will have heard before, but of course the main mystery here is just what they look like and the prospect of ancient civilization. Some of the epic claims have been findings of a metal library of books or gold books down in the caves. And, you know, there's a lot to be said about that. But I really am interested in what you wrote here in uh, kind of the dialogue that we were having with this question. You had written that Maurice said that he did end up connecting with some underground creatures that live in Europa. And as you had just said, I guess at one point he saved the life of a young person. And in response, the local tribe who really is kind of the guards of this inner chamber, they said, you can go in here. And I don't know if this is the same story or a different one, but his claim is that he did meet people or creatures that are inhabiting these caves. Is that right? Right. Well, he was very elusive. Morris and suddenly he stopped to talk in the last years of his life. He was totally mutis and he brought many of his secrets and knowledge and experience to the grave. But to the males, he didn't really confess. To the female visitors, he was more open <laughs> to tell the story. And it's to one of a friend who is an Argentinian researcher and Bettina Allen. She went to visit him in 1984. That is kind of already several years after his last incursion to the caves. And she told me, yes, he brought her and they experienced the sightings of a special kind of encounters with the creatures who were, they were winged creatures and they live in the darkness. And in the beginning, they thought they were the birds, the Tajos birds. But the Tajos birds, they act also as a bat. There are blind birds who live in the darkness, but they go to harvest food, retrieve seeds, outside of the cave, flying kind of several miles and bringing back their food to their families on big packs of formation of these sacred birds who are worshipped by the Schwartz Hibaro Indians along the centuries. And this kind of confusion make very interesting the analogies, but Morris alone, he was talking about the Belas or Taltos. In the Hungarian tradition, these creatures, they live below the earth and they have the characteristics to transform themselves, kind of shapeshifter creatures. And they could be kind of humanoids, but suddenly they could grow wings and fly, no? And he said they were advanced and this kind of group of human forms 
they have also technology and the technology was to drill to kind of have the power to manipulate the stones and to create underground cities no that was the legend would connect also with the hibaro traditions no of about the special kind of invisible being who live in the caves no mm-hmm. and they call the aratum and this aratum is kind of a special god for them no mm-hmm. a god who is beyond evil and good but also the birds have this kind of form of also spiritual entities who come to help in the moments of needed help or, or danger and yeah many people have been witnessing the strange sightings inside of the caves no for example people walking steps you find the steps footprints of people without shoes barefoot and going nowhere in the middle of the mud or on the soil of the caves hmm. but yeah morix was kind of continual researching what he was learning from his magyar heritage no and he was trying to communicate with these beings but he said they were living beyond also saying the cave was alive no i said the cave was a complete organism without time and space no <laughs> a kind of a vortex and portal portal place yes a very special one as that is the reason Neil Armstrong said I think this is coming to the inner space it's a totally different I feeling that I was walking in the moon he said to Julio in one of the colloquial talks when they were not exploring the caves and near the fireplace kind of this round of relax and he told many stories and Julio Gojen used to tell me many of these stories Armstrong never talked too much to his own family trying to interview his sons he didn't really mention this big adventure no who was but he said this is was so great as to walk on the moon walking inside of the Tajos caves <laughs> yes if people didn't know Neil Armstrong was on a curious expedition to those caves. He's also been on a few other expeditions that I'm always curious, like why they need him or what he might bring to the table. Maybe it's just his interest, but the situation with Morris is really interesting because you do have a lot of characters in the book and you're not shy about saying, this guy's a bullshitter. This guy was a pathological liar. But when it comes to Morix, it's not that way. It's more like, you know, if you really pride, he'd tell you some stuff, but he was a solo explorer very cat-like. He didn't really even want to tell his tales necessarily. And when people started to call bullshit on him, he started to get backlash for the epic claims. He was like, you know what? I don't need this. I don't need to tell you about this stuff. And he did get more tight-lipped. And that to me is an indication of some truthfulness. I mean, it's one of the things you have to look at because we just don't know. But one paragraph about him that I found interesting in the book is where you say, Morix asserted that the Taos caves were inhabited by the mysterious tribe of the Bellas more than 250,000 years ago, and that this tribe was the successor of a superior culture of unknown origin. He called them 
The Taltos, immortal beings who might have come from a distant solar system, possibly Ursa Major. And man, I really like that concept. And I was curious how he could know such a thing. In the book, I guess this is a reproduction of one of his interviews. And he does say that the story was told to him by a local chief. And that's pretty much the most credible source for this kind of information, as far as I'm concerned. But that is a wild story. It seems like there's a whole lot going on. This this area is ground zero for some of the most epic mysteries we might have. Yes, kind of. Morris have a special faculties, and they try to turn him down when the official archaeologists and anthropologists in Ecuador, they start to talk with him. He was kind of very far out, no? And he was thinking besides many boxes open <laughs> he opened many pandora boxes uh, defiant he was defying the establishment that is he get so many enemies and that was the reason he was not uh, participant of the expedition of hole with neil armstrong but he sent my friend julio as he could really guide it to the special places but my friend didn't show what was the direction of the chamber with the metal library. In 1968, Julian Morix, uh, I think Morix entered for second time to the chamber of the metal library. And in that time, it was an expedition organized, financed by the Mormon church. And I did an, a special trip to Salt Lake City to find the truth, but Julio never told me who financed or who was part, what American institution was involved with the first small expedition to kind of give proof. And this was before the declaration and the registration of the content of the discovery. And again, in the beginning of 68, two Mormon elders, went with Morix and Julio to the area, a different area of the system of caves, not the one of the main attractions. But in the end, Morix was very paranoid character. He thought it was a plot to take over his discovery and didn't brought them, but they brought as a prize of friendship, Julio. And Julio, who was very low-key, very humble man who never profited with anything, neither of his great discoveries, also in archaeology and anthropology and speleology. Yeah, his records are unique, but he never was not a rich man after being witness of one of the greatest lost treasures in the history of our present times. He was escorted to the chamber and he saw this big quantity of metal giant books with carvings and uh, different kind of sculptures he called the stone zoo and in my book i have an exclusive interview i interview him about all his experience and it's the only interview you could find writing about that i have it in tape i have it in video <laughs> yeah and this is the only one he granted, but he was very close up person. And we were going to go to an expedition with him. He said, 
Oh, I know you are organizing an expedition, Alex. I could go with you, of course. You are the only one, the last witness. But Morix died in 1991. This was in 1997, and a few months later, he died in a, another expedition in the Argentinian Andes when he was trying to retrieve some mummies who were different of the normal mummies in the size. <laughs> right. There's a little of that in the book, too. There's not only stories of giants, but also stories of little people. Oh, yeah. The Gentiles, Los Gentiles, yeah. Oh, yeah. Small gray humanoids. I'm just looking at the notes you had sent over, but that was going to be my next question is because there's more than just the Taos caves in the region. And of course, of all these cave systems and just the Andes in general, there's quite a few legendary stories of strange beings living inside them. I was going to ask you about a couple of your favorite stories of beings in the cave since you're so knowledgeable about that region. But as you just were kind of saying, the Gentiles... That's their term for the gray aliens or the ones that people talk about. Yeah, I did some expeditions following the lore and the legend of the Gentiles after this little creature, the Atta creature, who I brought it to the American public. And you know the story of this very small humanoid found in Iquique in, in La Noria, who was part of this controversial documentary called Sirius. Yes. I did the story many years before. I brought it to the American public and television in the year 2003 and later on. And you say these little gray humanoids, they live underground and they come to the surface only when the moon is full to help with the growing and fertilization of the fields and help during the harvest. Yes, believe it or not, I talked with several uh, farmers and dwellers who live in the Andes, in this region of Chile, mainly in Chile, but you find the same legends in Chile, Bolivia, and Peru. And the difference is the Gentiles, the Gentiles, in Chile, they are small size. The Peruvians call the Gentiles the giants. <laughs> and we come through some kind of biblical distortions and terminology brought through the Catholic and Christian evangelization of the Andes mm. and what they mix the story, no? And the Gentiles looks the the aliens will be the aliens, no? The natives call the Gentiles the aliens, the people not from here, the Gentiles. They were the believers and the Gentiles, the Gentiles who come from another religion or come from another race. The kind of the Noasas, no? <laughs> was the terminology of ancient culture and the Aymara Quechua terminology and tradition, no? But it's amazing how they describe, and this no matter they looks like little aliens with a big head and more small limbs, yeah, they live in underground cities. And they talk about the Gentilares. The Gentilares are the small cities and kind of small lilliputs similar to the Gulliver Travels <laughs> stories, no? <laughs> but uh, I never found the bones. They told me, oh, we saw this construction inside of this mine, and they live in the mines, and some interact with the miners. Of the 1900s and 1800s, you have this time of stories interacting. I said some people also, we found this small shovels, and we found some kind of small pigs 
or buckets <laughs> from these creatures. Yeah, well, show me, but no, they, I couldn't find a piece, no? I said, well, you come at night when there's a full moon or half moon, and they come out. And yeah, it's what you have to establish. It's what I tell to Stephen Greer. I said, if you want to really catch another atta, yeah, let's organize an expedition and let's be patient. And we found more evidence, no? And you find also carvings and the rocks, paintings showing how were this kind of mapping of their towns. And you find very interesting. I arrived to one and it's all these lines. You have many markings, the projective lines of Nazca lines, they continue to the south and they penetrate Bolivia and Chile. And you find this geoglyph, but there are hundreds and thousands, and it's, as I said to the people and ancient aliens years ago, the lines are not only in Nazca, but they project and they follow. They start to use my <laughs> hypothesis of the radials, no? And they project to the south of the map. And not only following the possible water reservoirs, but following religious and sacred lines of pilgrimage. Again, we're back again to these lines connected, visible and sometimes not visible, connected with the astroarchaeology, with the translation of the stars and the cycles of seeding and harvesting too. So that was important, marking that agriculture elements connecting with times of dryness and times of more humidity. It was a surviving thing, but the surviving connect with the spirituality of these people who were traveling from the center of the empire, Cusco, to the south. Along the way, we found these jeques. The jeques are constructions along these lines showing these knots of ceremonial worshipping and dispersion of the cultures. And also in the altitude, they found also boreal sites of mummies. For example, Julio Goyenawal, who also, he was the real discoverer of the mummies of El Toro. Unfortunately, National Geographic and Werner Reinhardt, who was a mountain anthropologist, took over what Julio discovered in that time. And also in that area, he was talking about was an ancient culture called the Antidiluvian Athens. That means it was a focus of lost knowledge too. And this is in the Andean formations in the northwest of Argentina. The story is long, no? But it's a kind of a, we are trying to leave the fringe archaeology to find more debating interpretation of the past through the work of people who are not recognized today, but they develop a great work. And one of the reasons I keep exploring and still giving importance to the metal library is what I trust Julio. Julio was witness when he back to Buenos Aires, he shared the story with his brother with his wife and with his daughter. And interviewing her, they said, 
and he never talked again. And he used for years, as we were growing up with these legends and teenagers kind of looking for adventure and discovery, we used to be very shy and respectful to that image Gojena Wado and Morix have, no? In that circle, we call the circle of Tajos, no? Yes. For the circle of Tajos was a kind of a Shangri-La, was a lost place in the high Andes with an advanced civilization, maybe coming from the stars or from the ancient, you talk about Atlantis. Yeah, it was very old. And that connect, when I start to find later on the search of Percy Fawcett, and the lost city of sea, the discoveries of my also late friend, Gene Savoy, who was a record explorer, American explorer, who is totally forgotten as the official archaeology eclipsed him. And after he discovered all the sites of the Chachapoyas region, no? Mm-hmm. And we have this kind of oral tradition said, yeah, in the west of the Amazon range, giant cities, underground cities, dwell and run. And that was the search of Fawcett. And Fawcett lost his life. And Savoy tried to prove not only the existence of these advanced cities, but also the communication between the Pacific and the Atlantic to transnavigation no? of all the cultures were moving. That is, we have in not too far from the caves, we have inscriptions in Phoenician, in Assyrian, and Middle Eastern writings in graves. And we cannot explain that kind of penetration of Middle Eastern cultures, but some of the explorers trying to kind of find. And I think what was looking faucet for so many years, there are kind of echoes echoes of these Tajos caves. They have this underground structure proving the existence of advanced civilization who have the power to carve the stones, not only in the surface in the high Andes, but below the air. Mm-hmm. And we don't know what kind of catastrophes we have thousand years ago, but it looks like they built this type of shelters. We have always, our planet has been in the edge of war, as you could see, in one any moment, <laughs> the red button is applied. I've seen in the past generations and the past kind of strata of civilizations, we have moments of creations and moments of destruction. Cycles, excuse me, no moments, cycles. Yes. And we cannot debate, knowing the nature of man, <laughs> we have these cycles. And either Morix was a revisionist of this cycles of mankind and Stanley Hall too. He was he wrote an amazing work. No matter he tried to do a scientific expedition, it's always a kind of a romantic way. No not romantic, but more deep than the official archaeology tried to put together the mystery of our origins, no? Mm-hmm. And it's all a big puzzle, no? We have all the pieces, we have rocks and we have different lines of thoughts but i always said science they're the stick of the blinds and the archaeologists always dig in the same pit <laughs> <laughs> yes yes i'm with you and 
there is just so much mystery in this area. But if we were to hone in on the metal library before this first half kind of closes out, this is one of the biggest claims. And of course, there's a lot of deception involved with this idea of a metal library. There's a few red herrings. There's a few false claims. But what mm-hmm. can you say yes. about the claims that you find to be most credible? And can you describe what this metal library is for people? Because the prospect of knowledge, even if we were to have to decode it from some unknown language, the prospect of something tangible from this ancient time is just mind-blowing to me. What can be said about the details from those that you trust who have said they've seen something that could qualify as a metal library? Well, as many ancient cultures left their records in the form could be preserved by the destruction of time. As we have the cuneiform tablets and we have a kind of uh, carving into stones in the form of petroglyphs and pictograph and rupestrian art or rock carving or rock paintings and some resist the pass of time but carving in also writing in metal is a way to also preserve that type of cultures and metal was developed in the last 10,000 years or less than that time since the Paleolithic to this time and we go to the age of metals and copper, iron, steel and what is more recent Mm -hmm. but the description of the findings either Jaramillo or Morix is where these giant plates, giant sheets of metal with different ideographic and scriptures they couldn't really decode. We found, again, we're back again with some of the bigger collections connected or not with the Tajos is the Crespi collection, but we have a lot of fakes but we have reproductions and copies of regular textbooks images and illustrations but also we have a generation of serial art who showed some time of semitical writings and hindu-aryan type of scripture and that is found also in rock carvings in the areas of Asuay and the Canyar, who are states and departments of Ecuador close to the Morana Santiago, where are the system of caves. And um, this kind of Indo-European writings are totally out of context. But as again, in the Andes, they didn't develop any scripture. That means it's foreign. It's a kind of a penetration of ancient cultures or was a mother culture who was spread either in Asia and also Central Europe and the Americas. But who went before? The Americans went to Europe and Asia or the Asian came to the Americas? Mm. That is, for example, what many researchers on transnavigation, transoceanic navigation, starting with Thor Heyerdahl, no? Thor was the first one, and with the Contiki tried to prove the currents were the way 
you could navigate it through rough bars to the coast of the Americas to the Micronesian Polynesia. What he proved, no? He proved it, and he's one of the greatest explorers with a purpose, no? Exploration with a purpose. And the main purpose of exploration, I think, is not only conquest the ground on the space, but have support of the origin of mankind. Mm -hmm. Yes. And the origin of the peoples. And also, well, Savoy was trying to connect for seeming repeating Heyerdahl, how the Inca cultures have a connection with the Aztecs and the Mayans and was navigation through the currents going north. Mm -hmm. And well, forget all the Easter Island thing. And along the coast of Ecuador, we have totally the same type of ceramics and burial sites with Buddhist position of the corpses of the skeletons proving what also was the migration of Oriental Japan cultures and Chinese to Ecuador. Mm -hmm. That is another very interesting thing. And they were claiming in the Orthodox anthropology that the Asians penetrate through the Bering Strait and they come south and they populate, but is maybe was reverse, no? Coming more to the West and through the Americas was in a primordial race coming and settling in the area of the Andes and Ecuador and after traveling more recent from the Americas to Europe and to Asia through the oceans, no? But not only through to walking. Yes. There are many different threads to pull on, and it definitely seems like cultures of the past had more communication and more means to travel than we realize. Again, as we're wrapping this up, I mean, there's just so many different threads to pull on here. If you were trying to make the best case that a civilization might still exist inside the Earth, of course, we have more ex description of actually seeing beings, but... Is there anything we didn't touch on today that you think would contribute to making that best case that there could be people living down in these caves in South America? Yes, that could be. There are many other stories about these encounters and these kind of things from the story of Akakor, Tatunkanara narrative, as I mentioned, the Fawcett quest before and other stories I didn't really cover in this book, but I'm planning to cover in a, a next one, talking about these mysteries and secret sites on, on South America, in the Andes and in the Amazon. Now, when you say Akakor, I think I've heard this in a documentary. Are you talking about this tribe that their oral tradition is that they were German and then lived underground for a while and then resurfaced in the jungle? Yes, the story of the upper Amazons. Yeah, the Tatunkanara, no? Who also was, have a lot of contradictions, but there are other sources about this. Yeah, and other sources connected with the Mato Grosso area and the upper area toward the Orinoco River. 
Huh. Yeah, toward the That's really fascinating because obviously I hear so many different things researching and interviewing the guests for this show, but that term Akakor has stuck with me for years because I thought it was so fascinating to think about all the lore of the Germans and the inner earth. And then you have this tribe that people stumble upon and they're like, hey, uh, your language is odd. The, the characteristics that your people have are a little interesting. What's your story? And they're like, oh, well, our parents and grandparents were Germans who found tunnels to the inner earth started a civilization down there. We said, we want to see the surface. And they said, sure. And so they come up in the jungle in South America. That's the story as I heard it. But man, that is fascinating that there could be a tribe that has that knowledge that is really not even trying to keep it a secret. Maybe they're just not being talked to. Right. I know. Yeah. And Carl Brugger who wrote the book, he was a journalist and uh, also he died tragically. After what he was, well, some of the versions said he was a kind of Nazi hunter and they don't want him to be alive. And he was continuing trying. Other versions said, yeah, Tatun Kanara was a modern person and he invented all the story. But I don't know. But there are other versions of Akakor and the ground. And that, as I said, I connect with the Fawcett the story of an advanced city who have underground passages and a form of shelters too would connect with the reflective story of the Tajos Caves, no? And we find, yeah, there are other more other legends, contemporary narratives of these cities below the ground. Yeah. Also in Central America too, in Belize, in the Mayan lands. Yeah in different countries mm. along the Mesoamerica. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, I think this has been a lot of fun, and I definitely enjoyed the book. Thank you very much. Of course. You've done a really impressive amount of researching and exploring firsthand, and I salute you for it. Is there anything else to tell the people before we go regarding social media links, your website, or anything the people should know about following up on your work? Oh, yeah, if they're interested to reach me, they could reach me through LinkedIn or through Facebook. Yeah, send messages. That is, well, I don't have the web app now. I used to be it. And my Patagonia Express, but it's no longer now. But it will be back in the future. And yeah, well, thank you very much. <laughs> I said, yeah, the investigation, the research, and the exploration continue. I develop other explorations or other past mysteries and planning to back to sites I had been exploring for many decades, either in the high Andes or in the jungle, no, in different countries. <laughs> but yeah, still also trying to set the time and as I said like don't trust too much the television companies. I have to kind of <laughs> look for private support and sponsorship and this time mm. to continue. Yes, I know that is a difficult thing for sure, but you are doing amazing work. I really appreciate your time and everything you have done. I know it's tough out there, but 
stay strong, keep it up, and best of luck. Thank you very much, Ian. You got it. Well, feed me Seymour, Alex Chianetti, the Tyos Caves, Interterrestrials, and a whole lot more. Another topic that sort of emerged from the joint sessions. Or really, it was a happy accident that someone called in to ask if I'd heard of the Tyos Caves mystery and the legends of the tunnels and the ancient metal library. And I really hadn't. But literally, the next day, Alex's book showed up in the mail. I actually emailed that guy. I was like, whoa, synchronicity. Can you believe it? (laughs) Funny how stuff works out. And this publisher sends me a lot of stuff. I have a great relationship with them. They're called Inner Traditions, and this is another one of their releases. I think the last one we did that was with one of their authors was Greg Little with the Denisovan Origins show, if you remember that one. It was definitely a favorite of mine from 2019. And usually when we do something in that realm of ancient lost civilizations, chances are the book showed up on my doorstep from them. But today was fun. Luckily, Alex spent a little extra time with me because I knew it was going to get shortened up a lot in editing. I know Alex is a bit thick on the accent. I could really only find interviews with him in Spanish before this one, so I kind of expected that. But I think he makes some great points about these networks and entertainment companies. They don't always go with the most authentic sources or the most primary of the explorers. They're very willing to gloss over that for someone who's American-born, a bit more flashy, a bit more showy, might not really even know anything firsthand, but will say all sorts of over-the-top stuff that people might make memes out of. It's probably why a couple of shows have approached me lately. I am the stoner sucralose of conspiracy culture. It is what it is. But I was happy to speak with Alex directly. He's done a lot of primary exploration. He's done even more research into and on the other explorers with claims in this area. And he's credited with being the discoverer of two lost cities in the Andes region. In fact, looking at the book, Inner Traditions refers to Alex as one of the most active and renowned South American explorers of recent years. He's won journalism awards and even consulted on Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. They probably didn't consult him on the awful freezer scene, but what can you do? He's just one man. But, you know, it makes me think that the reason why a podcast like this has an audience is because people are sick of networks deciding for them. Even with something as simple as the length of an interview, Joe Rogan, typical three-hour conversations, biggest show on the internet, networks would say, oh, people's attention spans are too short for that. Well, apparently not. And by the same token, I would think that a lot of listeners here appreciated spending two hours, or one, with Alex firsthand. But listening back to this, I got some things that I didn't pick up the first time. I wasn't really getting that Gentile is a name that they used, the indigenous people used for a believer in the greys. Not necessarily a believer in God. I think that's the point he was making, is that it's a term that religious language adopted, 
But I guess originally it had more to do with this idea that South American farmers are helped on the full moon by inner earth grays. And I'm into it. And planting and harvesting cycles are very much affected by the lunar cycle and the astrological conditions. So for them to come out on a full moon for that sort of reason kind of makes sense to me. And to hear that mention of the Akakor Indians, holy shit. That was a great moment for me because I've been holding that story in my head ever since I heard it in passing in some old black and white archival interviews I was listening to. Nobody I've spoken with has known what the hell I was talking about since I heard that and I hadn't been able to re-find it for a long time. I actually heard it on my drive up to LA before being on the Tinfoil Hat podcast. If you listen to the one where we talk mostly about the hollow earth, it's in there. And I wouldn't usually talk about something that I had just heard in passing because it's way too easy to sound stupid. But I couldn't shake that a group of people in South America could say, well, our parents and grandparents came from Germany and we lived underground for a while. And it's like they were found in the 60s or 70s. It's just like the right amount of time for escaped underground Germans to raise kids, tell them about the surface world, and then let people form a little tribe if they wanted to come out and explore for themselves in the jungle. It's like the best story ever. Besides the thing about aliens and the moon harvest. Go verify some of those details because I'm going off memory. But Alex didn't seem to have any arguments with how I remembered it, so there you go. But I'm very happy with how this turned out. Some very far out ideas were brought a little closer to home. I think a good case was made. And I appreciate Alex's work. In the second hour for Plus subscribers, we talked about Father Crespi's Curiosity Museum, Nazi outposts in South America, Ingo Swan and using remote viewing to explore the caves, the Mormon connection, mysterious deaths and curses related to the caves, and of course, secret societies and various groups and their interest in this whole subject matter. So become a member or a Patreon person if you want to hear the second hour of this show and every show. And with that, I'm getting out of here. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great weekend. I know I'll be lighting a Super Bowl of my own, and you should too. I've done my part. Your move, interterrestrial tunnel dwellers, metal library concealers, and secret keepers of the Tyos Caves. Your fucking move. I won't take it. No, I refuse. If it's alright, I'll keep my refuge. I've been scheming of bigger things and have to leave my old life behind. Gotta transfer to the inner earth. I built a box, built a hole, got a neat elevator going under. And now you'll find me in the bunker.
see now they're smiling and you're caged me how this happened how you don't see protection of all is the special shelter built according to specifications of your local civil defense organization. The basement of any house or building will become a good improvised shelter if you block the windows with sandbags. If you don't have sandbags, just what can you do? Bunker, take it under. You'll find me in the bunker, 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 take it under. 